This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Richard Oland? Richard Oland grew up in the town of Rosse, which is near St. John, New Brunswick, Canada. The Oland family was exceedingly wealthy. His father was the chairman and CEO of Moosehead Breweries. Richard had an older brother named Derek. Richard attended two different colleges and eventually obtained a degree related to brewing technology. In 1965, he married a woman named Constance. They had three children. Elizabeth, Jacqueline, and Dennis. Richard worked for his father's brewing company, eventually becoming a vice president. His brother Derek also worked for the company. The two entered into a dispute over who would be in charge. Eventually, Richard's father selected Derek. In 1981, Richard left the company and started three different companies, all of which were successful. Richard eventually accumulated about $36 million. He had a reputation as a fierce businessman and made a number of enemies. The office where he worked was in the historic uptown district of St. John. He rented the second floor. Richard Oland had been cheating on his wife with a real estate agent for about eight years. I guess one could say he was booking a lot of private showings or showing privates. It's easy to get those two terms confused. Richard's son Dennis was not too pleased with this affair, but he had to be careful how much he complained because he was somewhat dependent on his father. Dennis worked as a financial advisor, and Richard was one of his clients. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. According to Richard's wife Constance, on July 6, 2011, she was at home with Richard. At 9.50 a.m., he received a call from his personal assistant, Maureen Adamson, who reminded him he had an appointment in his office at 10 a.m. Richard left his home with the intent of going to his office. He did not return home that night, but this was not unusual. It is one of the consequences of maintaining an affair. Other witnesses said that Richard arrived to the office in the morning as planned and was there when Maureen left work at 5.45 p.m. On July 7, 2011, Maureen entered the office building just before 9 a.m. She noticed that the door was unlocked. When she walked upstairs, she came to another door, which was typically locked at night. It was also unlocked. In the office, she discovered Richard Oland's body lying face down in a pool of blood. She notified the police. It was clear that there had been an extremely violent attack. There was blood spatter all over the office, about a hundred spots, that were 360 degrees around his body. Blood was on Richard's computer, chair, filing cabinets, and desk, among other items. Richard had 46 wounds on his head, neck, and hands. The police believed that he was attacked, knocked to the floor, and the attack continued. He was alive when he sustained all of his injuries. None of his injuries were post-mortem. Investigators believe that his injuries were caused by a hammer, or edged weapon. No weapons were recovered at the crime scene, or ever in this case. One footprint was located, but it was never connected to anyone. 
Three hairs were recovered from under his fingernails, but they did not have roots, therefore DNA testing was not possible. Richard had alcohol in his system, but did not keep any alcohol in his office. There was no interaction with Richard's computer after 5.39 p.m., and he did not answer a text message from his mistress at 6.44 p.m. The police believe that he was murdered sometime between 5.45 p.m. and 6.36 p.m. The police were positive that whoever killed Richard would have been covered with blood spatter. They also believed he was killed by somebody he knew. The investigation was not professional. The crime scene was contaminated. For example, the police entered and exited through the main door without wearing gloves. They tested it for fingerprints almost a week later. Maureen said that when she was preparing to leave the office on July 6, Richard's son Dennis arrived. He was wearing a brown jacket. Video surveillance also captured him wearing a brown jacket that day. The police interviewed Dennis Oland. He told them that he was wearing a navy blue jacket the day before. The police informed him that he was the primary suspect, but they did not arrest him at that time. Investigators searched Dennis's car and his house. They tested his clothing, his shoes, his phone, and other items. No evidence was found anywhere except for the brown jacket. On this, they found four spots of blood, which matched Richard's DNA. Dennis was charged with second-degree murder. His trial started on September 16, 2015. It continued for 65 days. He was convicted and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 10 years. On October 24, 2016, his conviction was overturned on appeal because the judge had made a mistake with the jury instructions and the search warrant for the brown jacket did not permit testing for blood. Dennis Oland was tried again, but this time it was a bench trial, no jury. The judge found him not guilty. Now moving to my analysis. Was Dennis Oland guilty of murder? Many people believe that he was guilty even though he was ultimately acquitted. Let's take a look at the factors both for and against the idea that Dennis was guilty, starting with the inculpatory factors. There was no forced entry into Richard Oland's office. Nothing was stolen except for his cell phone. All other potential suspects, of which the police were aware, were excluded. Dennis Oland's movements on July 6 seemed unusual and gave him the opportunity to commit the murder. At 5.08 p.m. on July 6, he left his office and started driving toward his father's office. He said that he wanted to deliver research about the Oland family to his father. He was carrying this research, which I presume was in the form of paper documentation, in a red grocery bag. Video surveillance captured his vehicle driving by his father's office three times in seven minutes before he finally parked in the office parking lot. Either he's very careful about his parking selections, or he was trying to buy time and maintain surveillance of the office. According to Dennis, he reached the top of the stairs in the office and realized that he forgot something. He then exited the building. So he entered the building, walked up the stairs, and turned around. He returned to the building at 5.25 p.m., but this time he parked in a different space. It was on the street, not in the parking lot. After waiting about 10 minutes in his car, during which two workers left Richard's office for the day, Dennis retrieved a red grocery bag out of his car and once again walked 
toward the office, arriving at about 5.40 p.m. He said he visited with his father at this time. At 6.12 p.m., he was captured on video leaving the building. He was carrying the red bag. This was the end of Dennis Oland's story as far as his movements on July 6, until his trial, when his story changed a little. Now he said he returned to the office for a third time at 6.20 p.m. When he returned, he drove the wrong way on a one-way street to park in another parking lot. So three different visits and three different areas where he parked. He said he returned to the office to give something to his father that he had forgotten. At 6.35 p.m., Dennis once again left the office. His father remained in the office, meaning Dennis was the last known person to see his father alive. Dennis claimed that after this, he drove to a wharf to look for his children. Richard's phone had last pinged a tower when his mistress sent him a text message at 6.44 p.m. That tower was in Rossay, right near this wharf. Allegedly is back for season two, a new crime every time. In each episode of Allegedly, you'll hear a crime told to you by the person who experienced it, intermingled with actor portrayals, original music, immersive soundscapes, to create a cinematic experience for your ear. Season two's stories include a young woman finding salvation in God, only to realize the leader of her church was running a sex cult. A case of a con artist swindling a kindly older man until he couldn't do anything to stop her. A landlord exploiting a mentally disabled man and keeping him a virtual prisoner. An act of bullying spinning a promising young man's life into total chaos. And a luxury boat captain inexplicably detained in a foreign prison with seemingly no hope of ever getting out. New episodes release every other week. Look for Allegedly from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. After Richard was informed that he was the primary suspect, he sent his clothes to the dry cleaner. Richard appeared to lie about the jacket that he was wearing on July 6. He said it was navy blue but video surveillance confirmed it was brown. It's possible he didn't remember what he was wearing, or he could have been misleading the police. Richard and Dennis had argued from time to time. The relationship was not good. Dennis even complained about Richard's treatment of him when he was being interviewed by the police, evidently not understanding the concept of knowing your audience. When Dennis was being interrogated by the police at the police station, they left him alone in the room for a few minutes. He was captured on camera muttering to himself, something about trying to figure out where he was. It was almost like he was trying to come up with a story that wouldn't conflict with anything the police knew. Dennis was in terrible financial condition when his father died. He owed his father about $538,000. After Richard's death, Dennis became the director of all three 
of his father's companies. Now moving to the exculpatory evidence. There were no witnesses to Richard's murder and no video of it. Richard's wife, Constance, was the one who inherited Richard's estate, not Dennis. A search of Dennis Oleon's car and residence yielded nothing except for blood matching Richard's DNA on his brown jacket. That brown jacket had been handled by investigators who were not wearing gloves, so it may have been contaminated. Dennis kept the cleaning tags from the dry cleaning store on his clothing. If he was guilty, why didn't he remove the tags? He even kept the receipt for the dry cleaning. I guess he really wanted that tax deduction, although murder is not typically considered a business expense. Men on the first floor of the office building heard thumping noises from Richard's office at about 7.30 p.m. on the night he was murdered, although in one version they say it was sometime between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. Video surveillance places Dennis several miles away from the office at 7.38 p.m. There's no way he could have made it there in eight minutes. Richard Olan was having an affair and was described as having many enemies. There was no shortage of possible killers. The investigation into Richard's murder was very poor. Who knows what evidence may have been overlooked or destroyed. When considering all the evidence, do I think Dennis Olan was guilty? I believe he was guilty in reality, but not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. It's hard to find a good reason that the blood spatter was found on his brown jacket, other than him being present when his father was killed, even when considering possible contamination and the fact that his jacket was once stored at his father's house. In addition, his suspicious movements on the evening of the murder defy any other explanation. It's like he was hesitating or perhaps had concerns about the presence of Richard's personal assistant and other people who worked in the office. The Crown said that the first visit was hesitation, the second visit was confrontation, and the third was murder. This does seem to make a lot of sense. I think the reasonable doubt was created by the police mishandling the investigation, especially involving the brown jacket and determining the time range of the murder. A judge made the mistake that gave Dennis the second trial, and the police made a series of mistakes that gave Dennis the acquittal. Moving to the next question, if Dennis was actually guilty of the crime, what dynamics could have been at work in this case? This is just a theory, my opinion. Richard Oland had a reputation for being difficult to get along with. In his mind, he had been disrespected by his father. Again, his brother had been selected by his father to run the brewery. Richard developed a cold and callous view of the father-son relationship, which manifested in his own relationship with his son, Dennis. Richard was the victim of a dysfunctional relationship with his father. Dennis became a victim of his terrible relationship with Richard. After Richard had the falling out with his father, he amassed a multi-million dollar fortune. He was a self-made man. He proved that he didn't need his father to be successful. Richard then took that paradigm and applied it to his son, Dennis. If Richard could earn millions of dollars without any help, Dennis could too. Dennis needed to be strong, confident, and independent. Except, Dennis was not any of those things. He was a failure compared to his father. Dennis did not know how to earn or manage money. Dennis needed his father to bail him out of his financial problems, but Richard would not do it. Dennis was not able to convert this rejection 
into his own success, as his father had done. Rather, he attacked his father. He dealt with his frustration in a simplistic and violent way, as opposed to being enterprising. Now moving to my final thoughts. Children learn how to be parents by watching their parents. This system normally works well, but if a destructive behavior pattern emerges somewhere in a family history, it is able to persist for many generations. It's very difficult to break out of that cycle. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.